0: So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Judges, we're going to be reading from chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6, which if you're using the Bible on, in the pew rack in front of you is on page 201. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Judges 2.6 to three six. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went out each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110 years old, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh or the work that he had done for Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baal. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemy. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm, as Yahweh had warned, and as Yahweh had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and obeyed the commandments of Yah- who had obeyed the commandments of Yahweh, and they did not do so. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from their hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of Yahweh, as their fathers did, or not. So Yahweh left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, And the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Balhamon as far as Lebohamath. they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And the daughters, they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. You can be seated as we pray. Father, may your Spirit be working in our midst, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart of faith to respond to the words that you've spoken. In Christ's name. Let me present for you this morning the fool. He looks at what is false and says it is true. He hates to be ruled by another. He chafes against staying inside the boundaries. He wants his own way. He looks at others as being in the way. He doesn't think he needs to learn He has it all wrong, but thinks that he has it all right. He demands to be served, but he is slow to serve others. He walks in the path of danger and destruction, but he thinks he's living the good life. That's how Paul Tripp summarizes the fool, according to the Bible. Now, if you heard that list and didn't see all the ways foolishness is bound up in your own flesh. You either haven't lived very long, or you're incredibly blind. Now, there are some who are overtly the fool, typically children or adults who act like children. But the rest of us are much more subtle in how we go about it. Sometimes it's even subconscious. It's, hard to, subconscious, it's hard to see. We think we're the opposite of the fool because we're unable to see just how self-oriented we are. But here is the biblical reality. We are all born fools. Foolishness, if you think of that list, foolishness is the plague of humanity. It's the plague of my heart plague of your heart. As I've studied the Bible, I'm convinced that the cure to foolishness is clarity of sight in two ways. Clarity of sight in two ways. First, we need to see ourselves clearly, and second, we need to see God clearly. We need to see just how deeply we are under the sway of sin. And we need to grasp what God is like. Holy, loving, just, powerful. And the passage that I read this morning does just that for us. It allows us to see ourselves and to see our God with clarity. So if we allow this passage to have its intended effect upon us, We will know ourselves better at the end, and we'll know our God better at the end. And so my prayer for this sermon has been that he would use this passage of his word to cause us who are naturally foolish to be increasingly wise. Now before we dig too far into this passage, I want to just orient you to what the passage is doing. Remember that the, the main section of the book of Judges runs from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 16. And that main body of Judges tells about 12 judges, or deliverers, who successfully, successively rescue Israel from their oppressors. And this collection of stories at the middle of the book is often called the cycle of the judges because there's a basic pattern that each follows. Now, as we've learned, as we've been working through judges so far, this cycle of of stories is riddled with unsavory characters and uncomfortable plot lines. And the further we get into the book, the darker those stories become. And for the most part, these stories in this middle section, the body, are given without much interpretation, which can leave us scratching our heads as we read it. Did Jephthah do right by sacrificing his daughter? Was it good for Gideon to lay out the fleece? Is that something we should imitate? Was it okay in this situation for Samson to go down to the prostitute? We're left trying to make sense of these stories. How are we to interpret them? So this is what God does. Before these stories are told, He tells us how how to interpret them. He tells us how to make sense of them. And and that's what our passage is. It's it's God giving His commentary on the cycle of the stories of the judges so we can actually hear the stories rightly as He intends. So if we have two six through 3, 6, 2, 6 through ten tells us the initial cause of the cycle of the judges. Two, six through ten, the cause. In two, eleven and nineteen, he describes the pattern of the cycle of the judges. And then in two twenty to three, six, he tells us his purpose in allowing the cycle of the judges. The cause the pattern, the purpose. So let's look at the cause in 2, 6 through 10. The section begins by telling us about the days of Joshua. Remember, that's how Judges begins, Joshua's death. Now it's going, hey, let's go back. Joshua, when he was alive, he sent everyone to take their inheritance. Verse 7 tells us, if you see it there, That they had seen all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel. And the key phrase in verse 7 is it says that the people served Yahweh. In fact, that phrase is reiterated in describing Joshua in verse 8, where it talks about him as, or describes him as, the servant of Yahweh. So what you're hearing is a people who had experienced the hand of God in their lives. They were faithful to Him. They served Him. This was a good generation. Then verses 8 and 9 tell us Joshua died. He was buried. And the, the beginning of verse 10 tells us that the rest of the faithful generation died. Dramatic pause. The faithful generation has died. What will happen? Well, the end of verse 10 tells us with chilling clarity. And there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh or the work that he had done for Israel. Israel went from the heights of the Joshua infidelity to the dark days of the judges because a generation arose that didn't know Yahweh or His works. Now, when it says they didn't know Yahweh, it's not saying that they didn't have information about Him. We'll see that they did. No doubt they'd heard certain stories. No doubt they'd been taught certain things. What it's talking about is something different. We know that because later on in 1 Samuel, chapter 2, it describes two priests who did not know Yahweh. Because it's not just about information. It's about personal knowledge. Let's say that somebody uh, sits you down to confront you about something. And, And let's just say that the person sitting down to confront you doesn't know you that well it'd be likely be hard for that person to do a good job of confronting you with precision in a way that would help you because they don't know you. They don't understand you. They they, they haven't studied you in a personal way where they've walked through life with you. And so, of course, you listen charitably. Maybe ask a few questions. Your stomach's all in a knot, but you... Do the godly thing and listen. And then after they confront you, what do you do? Well, you talk to someone who knows you well, someone who gets you. And you ask them to help you see what it was that that other person might have been trying to point out. You you seek that person's input to help you grow because they know you. And it's in that second kind of way that we are to know Yahweh like a good friend knows you personally, with love and loyalty, a deep and complex knowledge that's built on walking through life together. One generation knew Yahweh that way. The second did not. And that smacks us over the head with a a stark reality. Faith, true faith, is not hereditary. It's not a family heirloom that can be passed along from one generation to the next. Knowledge, true knowledge of God, must be acquired by each successive generation. I grew up in the church. So did many of my friends. Here's what we who grew up in the church need to know. Our parents' experience with God will do us no good if it does not become our experience with God. Our knowledge about God will do us no good if we do not know God. We can't live vicariously our parents' faith. Faith is not hereditary. And somehow, in the Scriptures don't tell us exactly how, a faithful generation reared a generation that forgot Yahweh. He was unknown to them. His mighty acts were foreign to them. And there's a message to us then in that, to us parents, I think a somber warning. We can't assume that our children will embrace Christ simply because we take them to church and pray before meals. Just because we serve God doesn't mean that they will know Him. Instead, I think they will be looking, our children will be looking for what we really love what we really treasure? Can our children see how the gospel is shaping and transforming us? Do they see how God, the true God, is making us more meek, more humble, more gentle, more just, more tender-hearted, more bold for the things of God? more devoted can they see that we deeply and personally value and love the things of God or is church just something we attend as long as something more important doesn't come up is the the gospel like some vaccine we got as children so that you can be inculcated against hell A one and done thing that's important to do once in your life but doesn't have a lot of impact on us today. Now hear me in these comments. I am not saying that there's a formula for raising kids who will love Jesus. Love God X amount and your children will embrace Jesus. What I'm saying is driven from Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6 it makes clear that our own love for the Lord is what allows us to naturally and through all of life teach our kids about the Lord that we love. So, looking again at these these verses, 2, 6 through 10, what is the cause of the cycle of the judges? Somehow a whole generation arises that does not know Yahweh. They do not know Him, love Him, study Him, delight in Him. His mighty works are foreign to them. They have the information up here, but it doesn't translate into any true connection here. And then what follows is not surprising in verses 11 and 19. It describes the pattern that the cycle of the judges follows. But verse 11 begins rather darkly, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. Now, this is exactly what happens when we cease to know Yahweh. You allow the world into your heart. I like the image of a boat. The boat is the Christian, the water is the world. The boat is supposed to be in the water. But there's a problem if the water is inside the boat. God's people are supposed to live in this world. But there's a problem if the world gets into God's people. That's exactly what happens when you cease to know Yahweh. If God is just some abstract idea that you heard your parents talked about, but not a personal being that you've walked with and known His good hand, then it's easy to just relegate God to some quasi-reality that doesn't hold much sway over our life or our heart. And, and once you take that step, why not imitate the culture around us? And for Israel, Baal was a really tempting option. He was, among other things, but he was primarily the god of fertility. And if you wanted to have more crops, or more babies, or more money, what you had to do is convince Baal to have relations with his female cohort god, Asherah. Or Asherah. And the way to convince these two to have relations was For you yourself to spend time with a temple prostitute. Now you catch what's going on here. The culture around them told them that the pathway to success and fulfilling their desires involved sexual promiscuity and following their base lusts. Now that's a hard combination to resist. If you want a religion that will sell to the masses, that's it. And it's basically the same religion our culture is propagating today. Follow your lusts, especially your sexual lusts, and you'll find freedom and fulfillment. You can see what's enticing about this lie. You can see why people who don't see how good Yahweh is would fall for it. But it's a lie. I don't know if you know this, but you can get a Rolex watch for $40. I know, because I've been to Vietnam, and I've seen the street vendors selling that high-end brands like Rolex at incredibly low prices. I mean, street vendors all over. What a deal. And if you've never touched or held a real Rolex, if you didn't really know what an actual Rolex watch was like, you might buy that Rolex thinking that you were getting what was promised to you. But if you had actually owned a Rolex, a real one, if you knew fine watch craftsmanship, then that cheap knockoff would hold no appeal, would it? you actually know the one true all powerful God of the universe who loves you and who cares for you and is patient with you and walks with you if you've actually known this God you won't go searching for your fulfillment in some sex God who promises you so much but ultimately leaves you empty But that's the problem. Israel didn't really know this God. So she gobbled up the sex God and the lifestyle that entailed. Or as verse 16 puts it, Israel whored after other gods. That language is used because Yahweh's bound himself in a covenant, almost marital type relationship with Israel. He's been faithful to her, despite her weakness, despite her imperfections, despite her various sinful episodes. He's been faithful to her, led her, delivered her, and here they are now in the promised land, and the first thing they do is disobey what he had said and chase after other gods, abandoning their covenant with him. How should he respond? I want you to imagine for a minute that a man discovers that his wife has been cheating on him. Now, if he responded something like, oh well, that's how it goes. I guess she loves him more than me. We'd wonder. Something's wrong. We'd wonder if he actually really loved her in the first place. Because true. Covenantal love desires loyalty. There's a, a righteous kind of jealousy to it. That we, we don't want, or when we don't desire exclusive devotion from our spouse, it, it can only be because our love is lacking. When we aren't broken and angry that the covenant is betrayed, it's actually a deficit in our own character. But God has no deficit in His character. So when Israel runs after things that will destroy her, that violate the exclusive covenant relationship that He has with her, He loves her, and so He responds in anger and with a jealous kind of love for her. He knows these false gods are not good for her. He knows that Baal cannot satisfy. And so in His anger, do you know what He does? He he allows her a taste of life under Baal. That's is how often God will act. When we choose to turn our back on Him in His wrath, He withdraws His presence upon us, His grace upon us at a certain level, giving us the path that we've chosen. And the Bible calls that being under God's wrath. We see that in Romans 1. And I think there are many here today who are under God's wrath maybe in just a small way, not in the ultimate way that lasts eternally, but in a small way, God is graciously allowing you to taste what life is like when you choose the bales that this world offers. If that's you, consider that God may be doing that because He wants you to find how empty they are. Because he wants you to turn to the one being in the universe that can truly satisfy. With Israel, the way that worked is he gave them over to their enemies. Verse 15 says, whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm. And so we see the beginnings of the pattern or the cycle of the judges. Apostasy, turning from God. Foreign oppression. And then after that we'll see God would raise up a judge. And judge not in the sense of the judicial robes with the gavel and all that. But a judge as somebody who brings peace and then or maintains the peace. A deliverer or a savior. The judge would bring deliverance, then the judge would die, and then Israel would run after the world again. So here's the cycle, apostasy, foreign oppression. God raises a judge, he delivers, the judge dies, repeat. Apostasy, foreign oppression, God raises up a judge, the judge delivers, the judge dies, they go back to apostasy. And it's that pattern that carries throughout the book of Judges, which is why it's called the cycle of the Judges. But look at verse 19 with me. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. In other words, it's not a perfect cycle because things get worse and worse. Instead of being a cycle, it's more of a downward spiral. So we should stop calling it, and we will throughout the rest of the series, a cycle of the judges. We'll just call it the downward spiral of the judges. Because as you see it played out from chapter 3 to chapter 16, that's exactly what it is. It becomes more, things become more and more corrupt. So that, that's the basic pattern. Pattern of the judges. The downward spiral. But these verses also give us God's assessment of that. Again, so that when we're reading it, we see what's going on. Because this era of Israel's history does reveal God's gracious heart. Remember, when things are terrible for them, He raises up a deliverer. It tells us in verse 18 that He does that because He's moved with pity by their groaning or their suffering. You see, the dark days of the judges didn't come about because God couldn't keep His promises or God wasn't strong enough. Far from it. He went to great lengths to show them His love. No, the more profound reality is that the dark era of the judges reveals Israel's wickedness. Their boat allowed the water in, and God would occasionally show up, bail out the boat, patch the holes. But as soon as the Deliverer died, figure out a way to get that water right back in the boat. And that's important to keep in mind as we study ju- judges because we're going to see God's gracious hand, but the accent will be on Israel's infidelity. So we saw the cause, we saw the pattern. Now in 220 to 36, let's look at the purpose. What was God's purpose? in the time of the judges. Well, in 2.22, it says he did this in order to test them. Then in 3.1, it says to test Israel by them. In both places, referring to the nations around them, allowing them there. And then in 3.4, again, these nations, they were there for the testing of Israel. God's purpose is to test. The same idea is expressed with different words, kind of jarring words in verse 3, where it says that they might know war or to teach war. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first I want you to see what God's doing in these things is, is to test Israel. Now, if you're a teacher, you know there are two reasons to give a test. Sometimes you give a test because there are certain things you don't know. So I'm a swimming instructor. I've been working on this with the kids. Got to kind of bounce around between the different kids. I just want to get a sense for where each one of them's at. I'm not sure, so I'm gonna do a test so that they can. I just see where they're at with their swimming because there's something I need to know. But sometimes you administer a test because there's something the people you're teaching need to know. Take that same class. You're working on treading water, and all the kids are like, Oh, I can go in the deep water. I'm fine. I don't need to learn how to tread water. I got it. You're like, I have certain techniques that you need to learn. How to use your hands and your feet just the right way to conserve energy and keep your head afloat. No, we got it. They're not working on it. Okay, we're going to do a test. I'm going to put you in the deep end. And we're going to see how long your head stays afloat. And they get in that water, they try for a few seconds, and all of a sudden their head goes under, and they panic, and they wave their arms, and you pull them out. And now they realize, I can't swim. The test revealed something for them. See, God knows everything. He doesn't need to give a test in order for Him to learn something about us. When God gives a test, it's so that we can learn something about ourselves. And sometimes... We saw a few months ago when when Utah preached from 1 Peter, the test confirms that we do have genuine faith that we're walking with him. And so it gives us encouragement. Here in Judges, the test was was designed as a wake-up call. All right, I'm going to leave you alone in the deep end with those nations. So you can see what's really going on in your own heart. So that you'll turn to me and cling to me and look to my ways and trust my teaching to you. I want you to be able to swim, but you've got to listen. You see, even God's test is driven by His love. Did you hear that? Even God's tests are driven by His love. Many of us in the room have experienced God's tests over this last year. Let us be reminded that He administers these tests in part to help us see our own hearts and to drive us to Him all the more, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith and be able to see areas of weakness in our own heart. He has good intentions in our tests and we can trust Him in the midst of them. Now for Israel... The test wins something like this. Are you going to allow the water into the boat? Or are you going to get the water out? If you don't drive out the Canaanites, they will drag you into their worship and lifestyle. So God leaves these nations to test them. Will they engage in warfare, take the hard step of actually driving them out? Or will they instead choose the path of least resistance and allow the world to infiltrate their midst? Now we as Christians are not tasked with warfare. That was unique to the time, to that time. But we nonetheless must resist going with the flow of the culture around us. Now that will be hard, it will be complex at times, but we need to fight to remain distinct. We must keep the water out of the boat. So God allows the time of the judges as a test. A test designed to show Israel how dark her heart really was. That's the purpose. Before I close the sermon, I want to make two short but eye-popping observations. The first is from chapter 2, verse 10. Now this was the key phrase that I have highlighted already. It says, There arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh. Now think of that phrasing, and I'm going to read Exodus 1, Exodus 1.8 to you. There arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. See what the author of Judges did? You see what God did, inspiring that? He intentionally echoes the language of Exodus 1.8. Because for Israel, they knew that the, the effect, the result of Pharaoh not knowing was 215 years of enslavement. But in Judges, the result of not knowing was 300 plus years of oppression. In one, the problem was the evil out there. Israel, in a sense, the innocent victim. But in this latter case, in Judges, the problem is the evil in here. You see, we need a Savior not just from the evil world out there, but we need a Savior from the evil that is within my own heart the first observation the second observation is from the next verse chapter 2 verse 11 remember Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh or more literally evil in the eyes of Yahweh and that phrase Israel did evil in the eyes of Yahweh evil in the eyes of Yahweh that phrase gets repeated over and over and over we'll see it lots Throughout the book of Judges, it becomes just the shorthand phrase for Israel's apostasy. But then, in chapter 17, and for the last five books, five chapters of the book of Judges, which happen to be the darkest chapters, something strange happens. That phrase completely disappears. So it's the worst time for the judges and yet the phrase they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord is gone. But there's another phrase that appears. You might remember it. It's there twice and it's the last phrase in the book. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that interesting? Evil in the eyes of the Lord. Evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now in the darkest times, right in their own eyes. You see, when we try to do what is right or good in our own sight, we are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. When we reject God's moral authority, and insist on moral autonomy, we inevitably end up doing what is evil. See, as you're reading Judges, you're just thinking as you go that the the problem really is evil is doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. But the big surprise at the end is that the problem is they were doing right in their own eyes. So it's not like they were conscious of saying, okay, God doesn't want us to do these things, but who cares what God thinks? I'm going to do it anyways. They actually thought they were doing right. You might be here this morning confident that you're a good person. I like a lot about this church, but man, whenever I come, there's a sermon talking about how bad we are. I'm a good person. You consistently do what is right in your own eyes. Let me just say, if you could just crawl out of your own skin and soar up to heaven and have just for a moment the all-knowing, all-wise mind of God, you would see how evil your right deeds are. You may not like the message that the Bible brings about your heart, But it is the message that God wants you to hear this morning. We're not good people. We're not. God wants us to see that. Now, if you're here, I'm not singling you out. If you're like, oh, he's talking about me. That's all of us. The rest of us here get it. We're not self-righteous. We realize we're here because we're desperately sinful and need a Savior. I said that my prayer for this sermon would be that we'd be able to become wiser by seeing two things more clearly, ourselves and our God. So we've seen ourselves. Yes, we do need to be delivered from the evil out there, but we also need to be delivered from the evil in here. We insist on our own moral autonomy, and in so doing, do right all the way to hell. It's true what they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Our hearts are much darker than we tend to realize. But to know God, to really know Him, is everything. He's mighty. He has a fierce anger that burns against sin and injustice and all that's broken and wrong with this world, including what's broken and wrong and rebellious in my own heart. But He's also at the same time gracious even in His anger, He is noble and good because He wants us to taste the evil path we've chosen so that we'll turn to Him. Even in the testing that He allows through the fallenness of this world, He designs it in a way that's for our good. He wants us to see our own hearts and turn to Him. Can we see God as powerful and burning with wrath against sin and yet also see Him as gracious gracious moved with pity and longing for us to return to Him and be right with Him. If we're able to eat this meal before us, then we must be able to grasp both those things. Because He so burns with wrath against sin that it had to be punished with complete justice. He couldn't just wink at it or overlook it. It had to be punished. But He's so gracious that He sent His Son to take that wrath that we deserve upon Himself. Oh, to know that God, and to be under the shadow of that God, to have His arm around you as you walk through life. May we see God as He is. May we see ourselves as we are. And so may we learn to be wise.